Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Turning the Goldfields Green. This is our second last episode in this season and next week is our last one. Then, if you are listening on Main FM or 3MDR, I will play some repeats of Plastic Free July themed shows over July, which I made in 2018. And I'll be back with you, whether you're on listening via the radio or listening on the podcast, I'll be back with you in August with some fresh shows. And depending on whether or not I get funded for another round, hopefully I'll be with you for another year after that, creating content about sustainability in my region and hopefully a little bit beyond my region as well. And if I don't get funded, I will probably still make programs, but they'll be a bit more intermittent, certainly not weekly. In today's program, we have two takes on sustainable fashion. I actually have four interviews recorded on this topic, so we will have a few more shows themed to this in the future. But we all talked for so long that I can only fit two in this episode and perhaps uh, one per episode in the future. So today we're talking to Lynette Good about upcycling and Catherine McAllister about her brand of ethical undies called Wonderpants. And I have my dear friend Ellen in the studio with me today to co-host. Now Ellen, you are not just here because you are my friend or because you are one of the hosts of the main FM show Mixed Tapes. It's also because you are a most excellent seamstress and have been involved in the planning committee for the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group's Conscious Clothing Festival, which we were hoping to run later this year in October. That was before COVID came along and put a kibosh on pretty much everything. Ellen, tell us a bit about your background in textiles. Okay, so I, my dear mammy, taught me how to sew when I was a little girl and I really hated it. And <laughs> Did you? Yeah, I had a, I've had a real love-hate relationship with sewing. Wow. Um, but over the years, I kept kind of going back to it and eventually I went to TAFE and learnt formally how to sew and then I decided that I would like to go into costuming. Mm-hmm. So I studied at NIDA, I studied a costume making degree there. It's probably the most obscure degree on earth. <laughs> um, and then I worked probably for about 10 years in film and theatre and opera making costumes, mm. doing all sorts of great wacky stuff, mostly historical stuff. And most recently I work now at the NGV and I work in the textiles conservation department there and I build all the understructures for the historical costumes. The corsets? Corsets and bustles and bums and (laughs) petticoats and all sorts of things. All the fake bits that made everyone look like they had the same figure. Yes, that's right. (laughs) All the structure. That's yeah. interesting. So as mentioned before, last year Mazk ran, we ran a, our first inaugural fashion parade to highlight how bad fast fashion is and but also to celebrate how wonderful the local creators are and what there is in terms of the beauty of homemade or op-shopped but altered or any sort of other thing kind of fashion and, and all the ways that people can avoid buying into the fast fashion Um, very damaging sort of system before coronavirus threw everything askew we were planning a second event for later this year as mentioned before and it's all been delayed but we had it had sort of evolved with we got this amazing crew of of people involved and to help organize it and it became a conscious clothing festival like we were in the end we were near a month-long sort of program of events was what we were scheming yeah it was getting it was getting very out of hand it was was going to be a full year annual event by the end (laughs) but um there was going to be workshops and market stalls and local producers of fibers and natural dyes and spinners and weavers and all sorts of stuff so ellen was on this committee of of wonderful people who had agreed to help organize the next incarnation of the fashion festival so in this group was also our two interviews for today which is lynette and catherine amongst others. Before we launch into today's episode for reals, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this Jara country that we're living and working from and the land of the Jajarung people with whom a treaty was never signed and who never ceded their sovereignty. Let us pay respects to their elders and leaders past, present and emerging. Salt. 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 Salt.
Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. All right, Ellen just sank suddenly <laughs> on her swivel chair. Yeah. <laughs> These chairs have a mind of their own sometimes. <laughs> so first up, before we have our interviews, I thought I would give a little introduction to fast fashion. And Ellen, if you want to jump in at any point and, and give a perspective, you're very welcome. Sure. Um, so I, the first point I wanted to make was that fast fashion isn't all fashion. There is an awful lot of clothing and creators and creativity in the textiles and fashion world that has nothing to do with fast fashion. And we certainly want people to be able to wear stuff and not go around naked or freezing. Yes, we don't want either of those things. (laughs) Um, So it's really, fast fashion is really what has emerged in the last, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of mass production, poor quality clothing that is really cheap to buy and often the people who work to create these are treated very poorly and not given good work conditions or great pay and it all comes down to companies being able to charge very little so we benefit by getting five dollar t-shirts for example from target or something like that but it's not great for the environment it's a very poor situation for a lot of the workers and so i've got an article from Business Insider about fast fashion with a few quick facts about it and what it's actually doing to our environment. So the fashion industry produces 10% of all of humanity's carbon emissions. It's second only to the oil industry, which I think is huge. It's huge, isn't it? You know, I just don't think of clothes that way as being mm. so... But I think it's this habit people have of buying lots of cheap clothes and then wearing them very briefly. Mm. They get a hole in them, they chuck them out. And how they're produced, they're so resource heavy, mm. yeah. using lots of oil and yeah, exactly. power and water. Yeah, mm. yeah, exactly. And as you just said, it's the second largest consumer of the world's water supply. So that's huge. And not only that, it releases lots of toxic pollution into waterways and at the other end of the factory. And it pollutes the oceans with microplastics, either from us washing our clothes because they're mm. all synthetic clothing or through the production process. So an interesting thing I've, I saw in that article was also that on average people have bought 60% more clothing in 2014 than they did in 2000. So that's in the last 20 years there's been a massive increase in the amount of clothes that people are buying. So it's you know relatively recent, this sort of the intensity yeah. of this industry. Yeah, absolutely. And the other factor is 80% of what gets bought goes into landfill. 85%, sorry, goes into landfill each year. And so that's enough to fill Sydney Harbour annually, just textiles going into landfill. Yeah. Sydney Harbour's huge. It's huge. <laughs> and deep. Yeah. Yeah. It is. So that's just a little brief understanding of some of the factors at play in fast fashion. And of course, um, worker conditions is another part of it. And, and the growing of crops like cotton is another part of it. And that industrial scale cotton growing is, is very bad for the environment, consumes a lot of water, there's a lot of pesticides used, things like that. Now that we've explained a little bit about fast fashion and why it's so bad, let's have a chat with Lynette Good. In this interview, we are looking at a type of kind of textiles recycling that adds value to your op shop finds and offers clothes and pieces of cloth a second life instead of heading straight for landfill. So she is, of course, talking about upcycling. Let's start with what is your background with sewing and how did you learn to love it? Well, I was taught hand sewing, knitting, crochet, embroidery, all those sorts of things when I was very little by my grandmother and great aunts and my mother and various people so that started very early and I just I don't know how I learned to love it I just I don't think I learned to love it so much as it just it just spoke to me immediately yeah and I guess if it's just embedded in your family and as people gather and chat someone's got their knitting out and someone else is you know talking about a project they're working on it's just infused into you that's true that's true my great-grandmother was well known for her exquisite embroideries which I would recognize one of hers I've not I've not seen one for probably 
50 years or so, but I would recognize one immediately. Yeah. They were beautiful. And then uh, when I was 10, my mother gave me as a present some lessons on how to use a sewing machine. So a neighbor showed me how to use it and we made a few simple things. And that stood me in good stead for when I was a teenager and wanted to wear nice things but didn't have any money. <laughs> And also couldn't find the things that I really wanted in the shops anyway. So I started buying patterns and buying fabric and just following the instructions and the patterns. And that's how I learned how to sew, really. So you sort of self-taught through your desire. Yeah, for... yeah. Mm. And then much later on, I then went to the Box Hill TAFE to do an advanced certificate of clothing manufacture, which is the, um, so that's industry training where I learned things like garment construction and pattern making and cutting. But I also learned some more high-end skills like draping, which is a a couture version of pattern making, because there's two kinds of pattern making. There's flat pattern making where you have paper or card and you're doing it flat. And then there's draping of fabric on a model or a mannequin. So... I learned a bit of that too, which was fantastic. I feel like that makes more sense in that it's three-dimensional, so you can actually see how it sits. Yeah, well, it it is indeed. It helped, I mean, you kind of need both because once you've done the draping part, you then have to turn that into a flat pattern. But yes, the patterns made that way are quite different and you can really tell the difference. Like there's, there's something much more alive about them. And then from there, I I had an assignment in my draping class where I had to go and interview someone in the fashion industry who used draping methods. Now, almost nobody does, so that's, that was tricky. But I happened to know someone. So Rose Chong, the costume maker, uses draping, and her husband worked with my father, so I had a, an in with her. So I went to interview her. And at the end of me interviewing her, she offered me a job. So wow! <laughs> so I thought, well, there's an opportunity, better take it. So I learned a lot from her and that sort of began my career as a costume designer. And then years later after that, I started my own label. And after that, I started a, it was a, it was a partnership with a friend and we, we did samples and small production runs for independent designers and we were called the frock fairies (laughs) yeah right so what was your label what sort of stuff did you make under your label so it was called flying frock and it was the idea was that it was work wear like as in office wear but just with a little bit more a bit more interesting than your average kind of work wear yeah it didn't last all that long as a business because it was just me and it basically was five or six full-time jobs all in one and I yeah. Yeah. <laughs> couldn't actually keep that, that up. Yeah. Um, well, small business is tough. <laughs> yeah, very. Yeah. yeah. Well, sole trader especially. You don't even have a teammate yes. to bounce ideas off or do, exactly. do half the work. Exactly. Yeah. Frog fairies lasted a bit longer than that. <laughs> yeah. So I know you through... I think I first, like, I'd sort of seen you around and knew you, but Mazg was starting to try and run a fashion parade to raise awareness around the evils of fast fashion and its impact on the environment. And um, you happened to be running a class through the Country Women's Association, the CWA, with upcycling as its yes. theme at about the same time, mm. which was quite exciting for me because I thought this is a great mm. idea to bring into a sustainable fashion sort of festival. Mm. So how did you get into upcycling and, and tell us a little about what it even is? Okay, so what it is, and it's it's an ancient idea because as long as we've had clothes, we've, we've then altered them and fixed them up and done things with them. That's basically what it is. You, you have old clothes or indeed furnishings or whatever. Yeah, curtains. <laughs> and you make other things with them. So you might make clothes out of curtains or you make, might make rugs out of clothes or you, usually I'm making clothes out of clothes, but it's... You know, not always. Yeah. So tablecloths, picnic rugs, anything's up for grabs, old sheets, tuna covers. Exactly, exactly. The thing that springs to mind for me immediately every time I think about this is the sound of music and her making <laughs> those children clothes out of the curtains and then running around town <laughs> with their matching outfits. Yes, yes, or, or even Scarlett O'Hara making her uh, frock out of the curtains of 
Tara because uh, she needed a fancy dress. Yes. Yeah, and and people have been making like when you see old clothing displayed in art galleries and stuff, it's often something that's actually been remade and remade and remade, and then they're exhibiting the final thing that was done in 1860 whatever mm. but actually the fabric and the original frock might have been from a hundred years before yeah what a story that piece would have yes exactly yeah so what are some of your favorite pieces that you've made perhaps out of not from clothing to more clothing but out of something else into clothing i've made a few things out of tablecloths that i'm really happy with vintage tablecloths that have got really beautiful prints or indeed embroideries and then you can make things out of those that are just divine and some of them have got a really lovely drape to them because they're they're older and they've been washed many times and they've kind of gotten very soft and lovely but hopefully not see through <laughs> no, <laughs> not no indeed of... not <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and so i am a complete non-sewer it was around me in my family but i just never really took to it and in in fact had a lot of sort of like anxiety and sort of machine rage every time I got on the sewing machine I just get like explosively frustrated <laughs> so yes. it, it wasn't the creative outlet for me but do you have to be a good sewer to be able to do upcycling stuff like do you have to understand how clothes work um look I think you can do something at any level if you want something that's really considered and finally finished and all of that sort of stuff then probably you want some more experience but really the only way to get experience is to do it so I would say to anyone who doesn't feel very confident is just start with something simple and and just go from there and the more you do the more you learn and that means the more you can do the trick with sewing machines and frustration is that it's my personal belief that sewing machines know when you're when you're frustrated and they just make things harder so you always have to just calm down <laughs> take a breath <laughs> think it through and work out what's going wrong and make a cup of tea yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's probably where i need to start that's for sure and i guess the other thing with the upcycling is you know fabric fresh from the fabric shop can be really quite expensive but if you're buying a secondhand sheet you can afford to mess up a few times and try and fail before you get it right exactly. and, and be a bit freer yeah. with it all yeah. absolutely in fact sheets make a really great sort of starter thing it's a really good idea especially if you're wanting to make something out of really special fabric to make it first in something else yeah so that you know that you're getting the fit right and all of those sorts of things and sometimes those those little um, test projects can be the thing that you wear more. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know of any good online resources for people who might want to get into this? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you Google things like upcycling or clothing recycling, you, you get a lot, a lot, a lot of Pinterest kits. So that's definitely a place to go and have a look for things. But there's... There's a few Facebook groups which I really like, mainly because they're basically representing all different skill levels and all different tastes too, So, and they're from all over the world. So there's one called the Upcycled Cloth Collective, and there's one called the Fabric Upcycling Community, and they're both great because you get all kinds of different things. Some things I just think are hideous, but they're, you know someone's put a lot of heart into them, and some things I think are just extraordinarily beautiful, but no matter what I think of them, they're all made by someone who's really passionate about it and really excited about it. And the, the lovely thing about those Facebook groups is they tend to be extremely supportive and you, you get just like this long stream of people saying how wonderful they think it is. So that's very <laughs> nice too. Yeah. Yeah. If you need a bit of encouragement, then yeah. it's definitely a yeah. good place to go. And there's a couple of people who do YouTube videos on upcycling. So there's one called Paper Mishi. She does really creative stuff with all sorts of interesting things. And there's a, another one called Sarah Chow. It's another YouTuber who does that sort of thing. And you can check out my Facebook page, which is The Craftorialist. And I put all sorts of stuff up there because I make all sorts of different kinds of things. I believe you're, you're looking to, once lockdown and the COVID situation settles down, you'll be looking to run some classes again locally with this sort of thing? Hopefully, yeah. I'm still trying to nut through what, what sort of protocols I'd need to have in place and how I would deal with any kind of 
you know, safety issues. But assuming that assuming that one day that can be yeah. sorted out, I would love to, to do some, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So people can go to your Facebook page, The Craft Oralist, which I'll put a link to at the bottom of the podcast episode if people want to find you. And they can subscribe to an email. So once there is something to uh, to find out about, I'll email people about it. and mm. So you can subscribe to that. Yeah, great. Via that Facebook page. Yeah, brilliant. I think the main thing for me is that when you've been making something, there's this extraordinary sense of achievement that is really, it's really special. Like I really love that, that I still get that sense, even though I've been making clothes for most of my life, I still have this kind of, pleasure in the kind of magic of it where you've kind of come up with something completely new out of some old bits that would otherwise have been thrown away which of course as we know there is no away so it's it's really great to be able to reuse things and make them into something that you will actually use instead of something that just goes just going to sit in the cupboard I'm always trying to avoid putting anything into the bin where it might end up in landfill so even things that really are just rags, you can actually turn them into rugs that will then go on and last for many decades more. So I've just done that recently with some shirts and things that were really wearing very thin and I've braided them up with some leftover bits and pieces and some other things and then coiled it round into a rug and it's that'll keep going for a good long while now. I have an aunt who does those rag rugs and she gave me one... Oh, over a decade ago, almost mm. two decades ago, I'd say. And it's still yeah. my bath mm. mat and I love it because it's this brightly coloured hodgepodge sort of rainbow yeah. spiral. Yeah, and they're so beautiful. <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's great. And it's certainly not wearing thin. Yeah, exactly. The other beautiful thing you can do with bits and pieces that are really just scraps, is, of course, is patchwork quilts, which are super useful and, and very beautiful. And you can make a quilt that's got pieces of clothing that, mean something to you so there's there's a um a lot of people making things out of clothes of people who've died for their families and stuff and it's just lovely it's a really beautiful sort of tribute to do yes and it's it's a very tactile comforting thing to have that's associated with that person yeah So that was Lynette Good there talking about upcycling. Uh, so Ellen, I know that you have done some upcycling in your life. <laughs> <laughs> you, um, I've seen some amazing upcycling. pieces that you've made. What, tell us a little bit about some of the pieces you've made. Yeah, I've made a few, a few things. I made a pair of overalls for Sass out of a Duna cover that she loved and had been dragging around forever yeah and it was great she was wearing it one day and um she ran into someone and they worked out that that person actually owned that doona cover and they'd given it to the op shop where sass (laughs) bought it and then it got transformed into these overalls yeah and i've made things out of like old tablecloths and then that have got beautiful embroidery on them Mm. because you know you see these beautifully embroidered tablecloths and you think i'm not going to Put it on on my table. Ah, but I'd love to wear it. So I've made a few jackets out of out of those that Mm. I've cut up and um, requilted them and done all these sort of interesting different things to them. I was just going to say they'd be very lightweight jackets, but you've added layers and yeah. Mm. So it's and and as Lynette was saying, it's just it's so much fun and such an interesting process to work with materials in that way because you can just make so many different things and you can you can stitch on top of it or you can dye it or you can yeah there's just so many ways you can go with something so mm. yeah yeah there was lots of great stuff that Lynette was talking about there when she was talking about making rag rugs I have a memory of hearing about someone once who'd had a particularly nasty breakup with their partner and they took all their clothes and turned them into a rag rug (laughs) so that every time they walked in the door they could rub their feet on them I mean it's a bit it's got a bit of resentment in it but I just remembered that story but it's sort of it would have been a bit cathartic to tear the fabric (laughs) as well because you tear it into strips and then you slat it yeah but there's so much meaning in what we wear and how mm. we wear it and and what 
Lynette was talking about as well was, you know, people creating and making their own unique thing and how that then becomes really laced with meaning actually Mm. rather than something that you've just bought off the rack. Bought off a rack. Yeah, it just has so much more history to it and story and yeah and and you feel different when you wear that stuff to when you wear the stuff that's just off the rack yeah and I remember at the last sustainable fashion Mm. festival we did Lynette featured quite a lot and she'd just finished running one of her upcycling classes and a few of the people that she'd taught came and they were displaying their clothes and things and it was just so fantastic what people had learnt through that course. Mm. And, and if you are someone that is wanting to start, yeah. I think that's a really great place to start would be doing one of those classes with Linux. People would just bring things and she would help them... Figure it out. Figure it out. And yeah. sometimes that's just what you need if you're yeah. a beginner and you're not sure what you're doing. And Yeah. It's interesting, her background, which she also did costume design and costume creation as Mm. as a major part of her learning experience and she did talk about um you know learning the different ways of creating like you can do paper patterns but you can also drape things over a thing Mm. you know and I guess making clothes for your own individual body because none of us looks like a mannequin Mm. you know we all have our own unique bulges and bits and pieces yeah (laughs) absolutely it's like to so to make something just for you and your body Mm. would be very satisfying yeah 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 it's great and she also talked about that there's any level and Mm. I really agree with that too you can just you can have as much satisfaction out of just throwing something together and it's rough as guts yeah and I think a belt does wonders in that situation (laughs) if you're making like a shift dress and you've just basically got two rectangles put together with some armholes and a neck hole a belt pulls it all together yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, it was very interesting. And also what she was talking about with the historical textiles. Mm. I work in a gallery and I work with a lot of historical garments. A lot of the things that we have from the 18th century are really amazing because the fabrics were all hand-woven. So Mm. even though that was a few hundred years ago now, those fabrics are so intact. They're almost perfect. That's amazing. Yeah, they're all hand dyed, they're all hand woven, they're all hand stitched. Yeah, wow. And, you know, hand spun all the fibres. And so and the what quality. They, what sort of fibres were they made um, of? Cottons and silks. Yeah. Yeah. And linens? And wools. Woolen. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. the wools, yeah, sometimes they can get eaten by critters. But, mm. yeah, the quality of those those clothes are just amazing. Yeah. And, and if you compare that to the thin fabric mm. that we have these days and, and yeah. the poor seam, seams and things that mm. little pop little holes in them constantly. Mm. Yeah. The cost of producing those fabrics was a lot. They were very, very expensive fabrics. So the garments last. would not necessarily be cut very much. They'd just be big flowing things to show off. How wealthy you were. The fabrics, yes. Yeah, sure. But, you know, people would probably have, you know, depending on how wealthy they were, obviously, but, you know, people would keep those things and... Yeah. And as Lynette was saying, they get remade and remade and remade over time. Yeah. Or end up as, you know, the next decades or the next century's fancy dress costumes. Yeah. You know, so. Very interesting. And, we, yeah, just the longevity of those pieces compared to what's made now is yeah is mind-blowing, really. You can't imagine anything made now still being in a museum 200 years later. Yeah, unless <laughs> it's really high fashion and it's been in a museum the whole time. Yeah, and taken care of. Yeah. <laughs> true true yeah cool so there's one thing that's trickier to make out of off cuts and perhaps requiring a bit more sewing and machine prowess I don't know that I would know how to make a pair of underwear just from scratch yeah it's funny isn't it like something that's so little but it's actually really tricky tricky yeah I think it's easier to make a coat than to make a pair of undies actually (laughs) I think you also don't want to buy underwear secondhand from the op shop Definitely not. I wouldn't, like almost any other piece of clothing I'd get secondhand, but not underwear. So how do you get ethical underwear? Because it's a really tricky one, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And we're lucky that we've got local producers. Yeah. It's one of the hardest things to get ethically, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. So we've got an interview now with Catherine McAllister, who makes the beautiful Wonder Pants, which has had sustainability at its heart right from the start. So what made you want to start making knickers? Mainly fueled by wanting to wear comfy knickers myself. And I, I already sewed a lot of different types of things. 
yeah, I just wanted to wear comfy knickers. And then a friend of mine gifted me a pattern for a pair of knickers that I then kind of sat with and played around with a bit. And yeah, that's how Wonder Pants was born. Comfort for myself. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, the potential for others to enjoy the comfort. Yeah, great. And how long ago was that? That was about 10 years ago. I would put it in the category of not hobby, but, you know, it's been a very slow process for me to build Wonder Pants brand, mostly probably because I did it part-time to begin with and sort of took a long time to build up funds to be able to buy more fabric. Like, I would, I'd make them, sell them at the out of market, and then with that, those funds, I could buy a bit more fabric. And so it just took me a long time to get going that way. I didn't really have a, a, a lump of capital to invest in it or anything. Yeah, so you're still working other jobs. and Yeah. And does it fully support you now? Almost. <laughs> Almost yeah. fully supporting me. <laughs> um, but I don't work any other jobs now. I just work at Underpants and that happened last year, which was a really great moment. And it felt a bit like the energy shifted as well as my focus could just be wholly on Underpants. It was a good feeling. So it felt really good. It also felt really good when I moved to the mill, which was two years ago, to the workroom there. And that that's when I really fully committed to the actual business, like making it a business that was viable, not just sort of something for fun. Yeah, committing to paying some rent for your business makes you... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I already did. I did do that, but it was just still in my head a bit more fun vibe rather than like a proper, I want to actually try and make this business work well. And so... You've made some decisions along the way about choosing organics or, or various sustainability options. I noticed when I bought a pair of knickers from you recently, everything, like there was no plastic around it. So the knickers were wrapped in paper and even how it was delivered was paper-based. Yeah. What sort of influenced you to make those decisions and what sort of decisions have you had to make? I think really I just wanted, if I was going to be in the fashion world, which is you know, it's a weird phrase for underwear, but it, I suppose that's a category it falls into. Um, mm. I wanted to, I didn't want to be contributing to any sense of fast fashion or, but there's so much waste that goes on with that. So I wanted the quality to be extremely high. And, and just because of the way I've lived my life, I've, you know, mostly tried to live an organicish life. So it made sense for me to just try and find organic fabric. In the beginning, also I used dead stock fabric, which is, also a fairly ecological choice because it's fabric that would probably just end up in landfill if it wasn't used. Mm, So what is that? So it's like leftover rolls from designers or manufacturers. um, There's a few fabric shops that sell like the end rolls of other designers' fabric. Yeah, right. So it's, it's a good way to use fabric. So that's kind of how I started and because I wasn't ordering enough initially to... To warrant a full roll of those fabrics. Yeah, wholesalers, you know, they you need to usually have a minimum order quantity. So, and I wasn't sort of ready for that yet. So it took a while to be able to build up. I had a really great organic fabric supplier years ago before I went away. And, and that closed down, which was really sad because their quality of fabric was really beautiful. And they lost some really big accounts to offshore stuff. So they that was a bit sad. And then I had the break, and then I, when I came back, I had to find a new fabric supplier, which I did, which was great. And it's knitted in Australia, but the organic cotton comes from India. And is it hard to find good organic fabric at an affordable price? Well, these people are really great, and it's affordable. I mean, what is affordable? You know, it means that the product has to be more expensive, definitely, because it's more expensive than non-organic, and the colour ranges are more limited. They have a base range, which I use, the standard stock range of colours, which is only four colours. Mm-hmm. And I use those and then I get my own colours made, custom made. But at this point, I can still only afford to get one of those at a time and you have to order four rolls. So, you know, it's still still a growing scenario. I, I mean, it's happening quicker. I can order them quicker so I can have new colours more steadily through the year. And so run us through what's involved in making them and, for example, how long it takes you to make a single pair. And I'm doing this in order to compare with, like, what you're competing with in terms of fast fashion and how you're pricing things. Yeah, but I don't really, you know, to say how long it might take to make one pair. I mean, if I cut out a pair and then sewed it, it would take a certain amount of time, but I don't 
do it that way. So I cut out a bunch altogether. Like I have a big cutting table and like a speedy rotary cutter that, you know, zips through, can cut maybe 15 layers of fabric quite easily. So I cut a bunch at a time. And then, yeah, so a batch at a time. So, but I don't make the pricing structure based on how long it would take to make one pair. Yeah, sure. No, that's fair. I guess I'm sort of like wanting to make the point that, you know, if if people are looking at buying knickers from Target, for example, they can get them for $5 a pair or even $5 for a packet of 12 or something. Um, yeah. Whereas... Yeah. I mean, I actually don't know how they afford like how they afford to make them that, that cheaply. I know. How can they even, like even the transport from where they're made to here should cost more than that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think the fabric is not very good quality but cheaper. Um, and, of course, they must be paying their staff ridiculously low wages. Yeah, exactly. And on mass, I mean, just the level of production would be enormous. Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the main complaints I get is that they last too long. And <laughs> they want a people fresh pair. want to update. Yeah, they want an up, They want to update, or there's a new color, and it's like, mm, can I really justify it? Because I've got quite a drawfall, but and they just don't wear out. I mean, they do eventually, but they take a long time. It's you know they're around for a while, and I think probably somehow bonds have actually helped be a comparison now because now they're made offshore and the quality just dropped so immediately, and the fabric they use is so thin and. They just immediately get baggy and, you know, then just start to fall apart. I shouldn't probably mention Bond. So I can maybe the unnamed that. company that we all know yeah, the name of. Um, <laughs> a, a bigger unknown brand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, a previously good quality Australian underwear. Uh, yeah. You know, like it's often lamented upon that they just don't last. So I'm pretty glad that, that to be, I mean, I wouldn't want to have a product that, was like that so that was definitely part of creating the story for Wonderpants was to have something that lasted and lasted yeah and I think that really does help people you know make that commitment to spend that money to buy a pair or three pairs or whatever yeah and I have the rack at the Castleman Bazaar as well for local people oh, yeah. um and I also have like a little seconds and sample basket in there which you know, kind of feels like a little prize for local people. Yeah, cool. Because really, the, the business, I have been so supported, so well supported by mm. the local community in building this business. It's, it's been a really wonderful, wonderful, generous place to build a small business, Castlemaine. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. And I yeah. think that a business of your size in a town this size is like a perfect fit. Um, one of the things that we're looking at in the sustainability movement is more localization. So, like, you know, we could have one of you in towns right across Australia and you'd all thrive and be good as business people and self-sufficient and you'd be supplying your local town with what they need and people know you, you know them, so there's an extra accountability, you know, in terms yeah. of quality and all yeah. of that stuff. And also just, yeah, when thinking about building and growing the business, the prevalent model is just to try and get really, really big, as big as you can, go global or get big enough so that someone else wants to buy you, you know, it's like, but it's like, well, do you actually want that or do you want to just create a living for yourself and, yeah, to be a much more sort of steady leveled sized business that doesn't have to catapult in size, you know, just provide a living. Like it sort of feels a bit more like an old old school way of living in a small community, yeah, and everyone has their little specialties. It's all about balance and finding the lifestyle that you want and your business is a part of that rather than going hard and losing your life. I mean, there is a way to grow a business and still have a heart at the centre of it and, and it could be quite large, but it's, a, it's definitely a different kind of business that you'd be running. You know, I don't also don't want to limit the idea that my business could get bigger. So what is your philosophy on pricing your product and how do you make it worth your while as a small business owner where you have to also do all of your own marketing and all of your own, you know, bookkeeping and ordering? And Yeah. If I was to be absolutely vigilant with how much time would go into one pair, then they would probably have to be more expensive than they are. And that just that freaks me out. <laughs> I don't think. 
they seem already quite expensive to me and I don't want it to be like a ridiculously exclusive product for people, only people that have a ton of money. Yeah. Um, I would I would like it if I could make them cheaper, but I don't know how I could do that. I can't really cut any more corners. Like, basically, I'm, I don't get paid if I make them any cheaper. Yeah. You know, it is a business, which is what I've had to keep reminding myself of. And I know a lot of small business owners don't get paid for the first few years of the, running their business. And, and after that point, they actually are getting paid very little per hour if you look at the per hour kind of equation. But I think you'd go a bit crazy if you thought of it that way you just give up on your business if you did that did that sum too many times and yeah you'd go back to working for someone else yeah exactly or you just have to be a lot more disciplined with it and treat it as a much more business add-on yeah like you said there's so many jobs that I do that are not about just selling a pair of knickers branding marketing all the creative stuff everything you know, photography shoots you know all of that stuff takes a lot of time and just getting, if I have a new colour, like there's so many jobs that go towards getting it ready for to go on the website for sale. And the photography is a big part of that. Your photography and your use of local people in your knickers is actually a beautiful marketing campaign. I think it's really, yeah, it's, it's sort of really wholesome. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're so used to seeing like underwear on, on ripped bodies and, and beautiful young things flitting about. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm not saying these these people who model for you are not that, but it's it's so much more real how they come across. Yeah, I'm glad you think so. I mean, it's well, it started off with friends, you know, that were willing to get off their kit and pass <laughs> <my> underpants. <laughs> that was our first big one underpants photo shoot, which was really fun. And then, yeah, that just worked so well that mostly, yeah, it sort of started pretty close, like the models were mainly friends, but then it started to branch out into people that I know that are also Wonderpant customers and asking them if they would mind, you know, having a go at a shoot and also trying to keep the diversity happening with age and every other thing that we can incorporate into that and, and body shape. Another thing is that, that we we do want to work on expanding our size range so that it does include larger sizes which would be great and that was part of the plan for this year that the whole COVID thing has slowed everything down a bit. Mm, that's a great idea. Yeah so yeah it's a really wonderful Bronte my daughter is the photographer we've worked together the whole time pretty much every photo shoot has been with Bronte and she's so good at it and her eye is just amazing um, but we're, we're also quite awkward so we sort of turn up and we're sort of awkward and then the model at the beginning of feels fairly awkward and we feel like <laughs> awkward plus awkward seems to work, <laughs> create something really lovely. Yeah. And then by the end of it, you know, usually most people are feeling really comfortable and quite joyous yeah. and just really happy to be in their undies yeah. in front of us. And yeah. Well, there's, there's some very genuine looking laughing shots and I think that yeah. you can tell when people are faking a laugh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is a lot of fun. And it, yeah, and they just become more and more comfortable in their skin, which is part of what, you know, I feel like Wonder Pants is about as well. Like they're just really comfy and they just make you feel good and sort of forget all that other conditioning that we've all got so deeply entrenched of what what your body looks like and, and, and therefore how you feel. It's kind of cool that it works on that level as well. Yeah. And so you've recently released, or last year you released a merino range. Yeah. How do, how do they go? Really well. I'm sort of itchy on wool, so I'm really suspect about them, but I hear other people say that they're amazing, <laughs> amazing to wear. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think there's still probably most people I know that would say that about, you know, I'm too scared to wear wool have, have been okay with them. Like they're, it's actually a really fine kind of almost. They have a silky feel to it, the wool that we use. Yeah, they're going really well. They're so nice to wear. I mean, they're my preferred option, I have to admit. And what made you think to use Merino? Uh, maybe partly because I'm a Kiwi gal and my, you know, shape, shape, shape. But um, I just really wanted to have Merino knickers. Super soft, super warm. Was that the thing? Just cosy. I mean, it's freezing up here in the time. And, you know, keeping your bum warm is <laughs> quite a good plan, I think, if you can keep the underlayer warm. <laughs> 
if I have a warm bum and a singlet and warm feet, then I'm I'm a much happier person. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah it's like mm-hmm. mini mini thermals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and they're super light, and you don't really know you've got them on. It's really it's a good feel. Yeah, great. And we had that really great party. That was really fun. And that was actually another moment that made Wonder Pants feel like it was its own thing. It came into its own being on that night. It was a really interesting thing that I hadn't really anticipated from having the the launch party. It was so much fun. And so many people came and were just, I was just so humbled and blown away yeah. at the same time about the support. But it felt like the support was actually now for Wonder Pants. It wasn't for me. And how much people loved Wonder Pants. And it was just this really joyous celebration yeah. of Wonder Pants. That's really cool. Yeah. yeah, well, you did a good job of it. It was at the Boomtown Winery, which is a collection of winemakers who've gotten together and they produce their wines at the mill. And so it felt very local and, you know, it felt in line with what your business ethics is, I guess. Yeah. I, th- I feel like these things that we choose to do it just all reinforce that whole underlying notion of what underpants is. So that was Catherine McAllister talking about her ethical underwear range, Wonder Pants. And if you're interested in hearing about why organics is so important to sustainability, because I think that came up a fair bit in our conversation with her about why she's choosing prioritising organic material and why that's a sustainability issue. So in episode five of series one of the Saltgrass series, I interviewed Katie Finlay from the Mount Alexander Organic Fruit Gardens, and she does a really great job of describing how non-organic farming practices can be so damaging. And I have put that episode link in the description at the bottom of this episode on saltgrass.podbean.com. And also the Wonder Pants website if you wanted to find out more about Catherine's business. Yeah, if you haven't tried Wonder Pants, give them a go. They're great. They're great undies and you're supporting a really great local business. Yeah, absolutely. So we're coming to the end of our hour, but I thought before we wrap up, I would give some closing thoughts on fast fashion and how we can make better choices in our clothing. I guess some of the things to think about are like what it's made of. Linen, for example, needs a lot less water than cotton at the growing stage. Yeah. And I think it potentially wears for a bit longer you'd know things like that maybe not depends yeah, how thickly woven it is yeah, either yeah way. it's a longer lasting fabric it's a longer fiber isn't it so it's yeah. got a bit more strength in it yeah it's a great fiber linen mm. yeah. um so as mentioned earlier organic certification ensures that the region in which the fiber was produced has not been polluted by pesticides or excessive fertilizers or any of the other toxic things that can happen with conventional growing And you can think about where it was made. For example, does the country of origin have strong environmental regulations to stop producers from polluting in their manufacturing processes? And another thing is to think about whether you really need it. Do you need so many clothes? Do you need that extra, extra, extra thing when you've already got a cupboard full? Yeah, isn't there something about you wear like 20% of your clothes 80% of the time or something? Yeah. Like I know I definitely do. I pretty much wear one outfit for a whole season. Yeah, and especially at the moment you saw me in those green track <laughs> pants. Like, <laughs> Yep, <laughs> definitely. Um, and also the other thing to think about is what you do with your old clothes once you're finished with them. So if they're in good nick, obviously the op shop's good. But if they're not in good nick, you don't have to just chuck them out or put mm. them in the rag pile. You can do a few things like Lynette was saying with the rad rugs or... You know, you can even do things like donate them to the RSPCA or Moors, mm. you know, your local animal shelter if there's, you know, some life in an old blanket but it's not quite good enough for human use. Yeah. And another thing I think to think about is going back to the fibre content, you mm. know, like natural fibres yep. are better overall than synthetics because all the synthetic mm. fibres when you're washing them, they're releasing little microparticles into the water source yeah. as well. Yeah. So yeah, having a bit more thought about what you're purchasing, what you're doing, and mm. you know, maybe thinking more about creating an individual style and yeah. having and things quality. that can go with everything else in your yeah, wardrobe. Yeah, quality over quantity. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Good point. So I've got some future 
episodes, which will cover this whole topic of fashion and clothing and ethical clothing in greater depth. So stay tuned for that. But pretty much that's it from us. Salt. Salt. Salt in the air. Salt. 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 Grassroots. 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 Salt of the Earth people. Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. My name is Alison Hanley and I have been your host today. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you're interested in any of the books, articles or websites mentioned in the show, you can find links to them in the episode description at saltgrass.podbean.com. You can follow us on Facebook or subscribe to our emailing list to get reminders and updates about the show. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you if you have ideas for topics, know someone amazing we should talk to, have a recycling tip, a green product review, or have a song recommendation. Again, email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. This program was produced in partnership with the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASG, and Main FM. It should be noted that the statements and opinions of myself and the people I interview are not the official positions held by either Main FM or MASC. We welcome feedback and responses to the ideas expressed on the show. If you would like to respond to something discussed on the program, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. On another note, it's a tricky time to ask for money with so much uncertainty and many people having lost work, but both MASG and Main FM do brilliant work in our community and could use your support if you're able to give it. Main FM is going to be running their Radiothon from June 20th to 27th, and it's absolutely affordable to subscribe and get a bunch of great benefits if you do. Lots of local businesses give discounts to Main FM subscribers, and it helps keep this wonderful station going. You just have to go to mainfm.net, the website, and click on the subscribe button. And if you fill out the form and select your favorite show, which is Saltgrass, of course, then you get to benefit from all of the things that are listed right there and it's membership time for MASC so as a not-for-profit sustainability group your membership means an awful lot to us if you are able to join MASC and support MASC in all of the wonderful work it does in helping our shire and our region become more sustainable it would be greatly appreciated you can go to masg.org au and you will see a memberships tab on the website there and just follow all the steps so if you're able please think about supporting mazg and main fm